Welcome to Studio 2. I am Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. Today, we're talking about memory. Mm. Namely, how flawed and unreliable it can be. Traumatic events, high emotions, and how we see ourselves can affect what we remember and even alter key details to weave a whole new story. Then later this hour, a real education about cocktails, how to craft the perfect drink with award-winning mixologist Toby Maloney. He's the resident bartender at the Speakeasy Hop Sing Laundromat a few blocks away from us in Chinatown. But before we get to all of that... Mm -hmm. The country is dealing with dangerous heat waves, some record temperatures this summer, and we are all looking for ways to cool down. Seek refuge in air conditioning, maybe dip into a cold pool for a swim, or cool off with an ice-cold drink or some ice cream. So when we saw Amy Brady's fascinating new book about the frozen stuff, we could not resist talking about a cooler topic. She is the author of Ice, From Mixed Drinks to Skating Rinks, A Cool History of a Hot Commodity, and she is the executive director of Orion Magazine. We want to jump right in and sort of, I realized how much I take ice for granted as I was drinking a very cool beverage reading your book. I want you to rewind us back to the days where there was no ice. Can you describe, um, or, or, or say ice wasn't everywhere. Could you describe what it was like living um, a couple of hundred years ago during those times? Yeah, it was, to my mind, deeply unpleasant. <laughs> Before ice, um, you know, people uh, would had imperfect means for preserving their food. They couldn't just stick it in, uh, into an ice box, let alone a refrigerator. So they used canning uh, and salting, which were imperfect. And that led to widespread food poisoning. Food poisoning mm -hmm. was much more rampant uh, and uh, familiar to people than, than it is today. Um, there, there wasn't a brewery industry, which I know I have relatives that, uh, would have been very upset by that. <laughs> Me too. Um, you know, people, uh, only ate seafood if they lived, you know, within a mile or so from the coast because you couldn't ship uh, seafood safely. Uh, and water, uh, or any beverage for that matter had to be drunk at room temperature. So imagine if it's a really hot day or if you're sick with a fever, a taste of, of water would be, uh, you know, at the temperature of sweat. And then comes this guy, mm -hmm. Frederick Tudor, the Boston Ice King, who I got to be honest, seems like a bit of a tyrant, but a, a, a visionary. Tell us uh, about this gentleman and how he changed everything. I think your description is perfect. He was a, a, a tyrant, uh, but also a visionary. Uh, in his uh, late teens, uh, he landed on this idea that if he could carve large blocks of ice out of his uh, the lake on his family estate and ship it to people living in warm climates around the world, he'd make a killing. And, you know, uh, everybody thought he was a madman for even suggesting the idea because this was a time um, before people had ever shipped ice. So they would have to figure out how to do that. Um, and, you know, it took years and years of trial and error, but eventually he succeeded. And you're right. He changed everything. Once he got ice to warmer climates, it was interesting to me. It actually made me laugh out loud that people literally had no idea what to do with it. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and they were stunned. mad yeah. that it melted. Yeah. So one of the reasons why it took so long for him to turn a profit was because when he arrived uh, first in the Caribbean, which is where he went before he came to the southern United States and territories, 
um, nobody there had ever experienced ice. So they wouldn't just know what mm. to do with it. And that hadn't occurred to Frederick Tudor. So when he arrived, uh, there was also there was no infrastructure. <laughs> there were no ice houses because nobody had ice. And so his ice basically melted away on the ship. And then the few folks that he did manage to convince to buy his ice, those people were very confused because they paid a handsome you know amount for this you know glistening ice cold substance that would just melt away. And they were very angry. So, he had to teach people how to how to use it, how to take care of it, how to store it so that it wouldn't melt. It did, wasn't there. Uh, I'm trying to remember in the book, I believe there was a part where he sort of partnered with some proprietors in some of these warmer places to try to seed the ground a little bit so that that ice would catch on. It would be integrated into into products, drinks that, that people already were familiar with. How did that work? Yeah, so cocktails saved the day mm. <laughs> for Frederick Tudor. Um, when he was in uh, Havana, Cuba, um, he knew that nobody on the island trusted him <laughs> and his weird ice, but he knew that everybody trusted their local baristas and bartenders because cafe culture was dominant in Cuba at this time. And so he, in order to get people to understand just how wonderful ice is, he went to these local drink makers and said, look, I'm gonna give you my ice for free. So that way you can put it in your drinks and he showed them how to do that. And you could be, you'll be able to sell it for the same price as your lukewarm drinks, uh, cause I'm not gonna charge you anything. And let's just see what your clients like the best. And well, just like today, you really can't argue with a drink on the rocks. And uh, folks clamored for it. Um, you know, uh, they absolutely loved icy uh, coffee and cocktails. And then after he succeeded at that, he taught those same cafe owners how to make ice cream. And uh, ice cream became a veritable obsession in Cuba and, and arguably in the United States as well. And I got to ask, because I'm thinking the, the industry originally began with natural ice. That is ice that was basically harvested from water sources after they froze over. I'm thinking to myself, this can't, is this sanitary <laughs> you know um <laughs> could you describe how it worked and and how um sort of like some of the health standards developed around this this natural um resource well, the answer was no it wasn't sanitary <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination um just as today there are many things growing and living in lakes and rivers there certainly was in frederick tudor's time um, and then, you know, as the Industrial Revolution uh, reached its peak, um, rivers and lakes by cities, you know, like the, the Schuylkill River through Philadelphia, it was filthy mm. um, because factories and farms would leak their waste into these bodies of water, the same bodies of water that would freeze and then would soon touch the mouths of thirsty Americans everywhere. So it was very, very gross. I can't imagine. And then. Schuylkill ice. Schuylkill ice in my cocktail. But it was I'm real. sorry for interrupting, but that, that image it's, jumped in it my is, it does, I mean, for, if you live in Philadelphia, Amy, it's sort of, it, it is like a spine shivering type of it, thought. But there are people, but until one point, I guess, actually, that actually did stop at one point, right? Uh, Philly put, a, put a, a ban on ice harvesting at one point in the immediate vicinity, right? But until like the late 1800s, right, people could get their ice from the Schuylkill River. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. And and the city eventually did put a ban on it. But the thing is, is that the the ice kings, you know, the people that own these mm. ice harvesting companies, all they had to do was just go slightly north, you know, um, beyond where the ban couldn't reach them. But the rivers really weren't that much cleaner. Yeah. So people got very sick, you know, cholera outbreaks were quite common. And, you know, if it weren't for the arrival of uh, manufactured ice or man-made created ice, um, we probably wouldn't be using ice today uh, because confidence in the substance just plummeted, as you can imagine. Now, let's talk about manufactured mm. ice. This, I think, for me, was the most fascinating part of the whole book. And it's a fascinating book overall. But the story of poor... John Gorey, I hope no. I'm saying his, his name oh, right. Um, yeah. the, almost this rogue inventor comes up with this idea of, of manufactured ice, not harvested um, from, from a water source. Tell us his, his story, his forgotten story, um, and, and how this, this guy kind of acting on his own seemingly created, people. transformed the mm-hmm. way we eat um, in this country. So John Gorey, go. <laughs> John Gorey was trying to help people. He was a, a doctor of little means who moved to a tiny port town on Florida's Gulf Coast called Apalachicola um, to fight yellow fever. And what doctors didn't realize in John Gorey's time is that the disease was transmitted by mosquito bites. All doctors knew was that the disease got worse in the summer and then it waned in the cooler months. And so John Gorey, trying to find an innovative way to fight this disease, thought, well, maybe if I can get my patient's bodies to mimic the cycle of the seasons, that is, they could make his feverish patients cooler, he could cure them of of the disease. But this was the 1840s. Uh, ice rarely forms naturally, uh, certainly not in the summer <laughs> in Florida. Yeah. The ice trade had only just arrived in Florida at this time. And so ice was very expensive. Uh, people in the region referred to it as white gold. Mm. Um, and so Gorey knew if he was going to get enough ice to, quote unquote, cure his patients, he was going to have to learn to make it himself. So he attempted to do so. It took him years of trial and error, but he finally built a machine that um, was slow but could produce a lot of ice using the same compression techniques that most of our refrigerators use today. And when he announced his invention to the world, you know, he thought he was going to be met with, you know, gratitude and cries of joy. And instead, the response was, how dare a mere man make ice? Only God can create ice. And, you know, this this was a, you know, a tiny, it was a rural town. Florida wasn't even a state yet by, you know, at this point uh, in time. There was, um, you know, a lot of superstition surrounding medicine and cold itself at this time, but probably contributing even more <laughs> to this issue was the fact that in the room where Gorey announced his invention, he announced it to a room full of very influential people. Frederick Tudor, Mm -hmm. the Ice King, had people present and they went back and told Tudor what was going on. And Tudor did not take lightly a threat to his empire. And there is not a bigger threat to a naturalized empire than mechanically made ice. And so it's hard for a historian to prove this happened, but there is a lot of evidence that suggests this happened, uh, that Frederick Tudor planted a lot of slanderous headlines in newspapers up and down the eastern seaboard. Mm, Very mm, fascinating. Mm. Tudor, 
Come on, Tudor. Bad boy over there. <laughs> um, I want to say, if you're just tuning in, our guest is Amy Brady, author of Ice, From Mixed Drinks to Skating Ranks, A Cool History of a Hot Commodity. We want to hear your questions. What do you want to know about ice? Are you an ice lover? I know a lot of them, including myself. Email us, studio2 at whyy.org. Um, I want to like fast forward a bit to okay. when um, ice became more popularized. And I want to talk about the Iceman. Obviously, <laughs> you're not talking about this. I want to talk about the Iceman. And, and I specifically want to like reference the picture of your on your book cover. It's like this guy um, in this dirty overalls, but he looks really, really cool. He's mm-hmm. holding a big old chunk of ice with some tongs, got a pipe in his mouth. And this was the guy with a rugged beard, okay? This was the dude who would weekly come in people's houses and bring this this liquid gold or this big, you know, yeah. wh- this gold that you talked about uh, to people's home to help keep them cool. Could you talk about once ice worked its way into, um, I guess, mass distribution and the importance of this person and how this Iceman was looked at? Yeah, so once ice became um, a, a bona fide industry, uh, the ice company owners still had to figure out how to complete the cold chain, right? How to get their product into people's homes. And so like so many other commodities of the day, like milk or mail delivery, they hired men to bring their cubes of ice uh, to into people's homes and then to heave those big blocks into ice boxes where the ice could be stored for you know a few days or a week at a time. Well, when I was doing my research for this book, I was fascinated by the fact that there are so many popular songs of the era with lyrics about housewives falling in love with the Mm. Iceman. There are uh, uh, Valentine's Day cards just rife with puns about the sexy Iceman. Of course, there's the early 20th century play by Eugene O'Neill called The Iceman Cometh, which is the title is derived from the pun of a joke that the protagonist makes about an affair his wife may have had with the Iceman. So there's this nationwide kind of fascination and, and almost an anxiety surrounding the Iceman. And I was thinking, why is that the case? Because I didn't find that uh, about the milkman or the mailman. And what I landed on is that unlike these other delivery people, Icemen actually came inside the house. Mm. Um, They crossed what some people would have considered to be a forbidden threshold because women, this was a time when uh, there was anxiety around women being alone in a space with a man who wasn't her husband. Um, And so, you know, there was this nationwide anxiety around him, around the Iceman. And that anxiety seemed to have peaked during the world's uh, the World Wars one and two, when many, many men Mm. were away from their wives overseas fighting. Uh, One of my favorite cultural examples is a song that was written in the 1930s that was later popularized by Ray Charles. The lyrics go something like, I'm moving to the outskirts of town and uh, I'm getting, I'm buying my wife a frigid air so that that Iceman doesn't have to come around. Oh my. <laughs> I got I to gotta say, um, my grandfather was a lawyer here in Philly and I once asked him, if you hadn't been a lawyer, what would you have been? And he told me Iceman. And now I feel very differently about that than and, I once felt. And I just want to say the Iceman 
were hauling these 50-pound blocks of ice, and mm-hmm. they were very, like, chiseled. So it wasn't <laughs> right. just some regular dude. Like, it was a chiseled dude. And many of them, according to your book, were Italian immigrants. So they had that, you know, they had a whole mystique about them at that time. It was very, that's a very interesting, I think, part of your book. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you for saying so. Yeah, they they were very chiseled. Um, I mean, ice delivery was hard work. You know, in fact, a famous football player of the day, Red Grange, um, reportedly delivered ice in the summertime to stay in shape for football. Can we backtrack a little bit? Because we, we're talking about John Gorey, and we kind of left it with this idea of, well, he creates the idea, he actually actualizes uh, mechanical ice and gets, you know, um, basically submarined by the the ice powers of the time. But then people do, like, s- steal his idea more or less, popularize it, and mechanical ice goes crazy. Um, and it totally changes a lot of stuff, including food culture. You mentioned earlier ice is what allows us to get fish inland. We can take apples from northern climates and send them south, peaches from south to north, you know, whatever it is. Um, but it also was a turning point in the brewing industry, which you sort of referenced earlier. Now, people might be confused because beer has been around for a long time. But how did how did ice, uh, first natural but then mechanical, change uh, beer culture forever? Well, beer culture in America largely started with a beer called lager. And lager uh, is a type of beer that can only be brewed and stored at super cold temperatures. Uh, Recipes for lager came to the United States largely from German immigrants who settled in the upper Northwest uh, and would be able to harvest ice from the Great Lakes to, to make their product. Uh, But with the arrival of the ice trade, suddenly ice became much more available um, because there was an infrastructure for it. Um, So ice could be shipped along the railroads and uh, via boats. And so this highly localized beer of the upper Midwest suddenly was able to be shipped anywhere, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in the continental 48 states. And so it's in this region where we see some of the first large American breweries crop up, Um, you know, Pabst, um, you know, Anheuser-Busch, Miller, um, all of the big guys uh, are largely from the Midwest because of ice. And I got to ask sort of piggyback on that, because beer was possible, but also there were many um, innovations in healthcare as well. Um, that made it easier to to care for patients thanks to ice. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So in the you know in the early early days, um, you know, ice was used much like you know you or I might use it in our own home. Uh, it was used to reduce swelling, um, to help you know relieve a patient from fever. You know, it, it's a, a form of pain relief in some ways. Um, And, you know, that was in and of itself pretty transformational because prior to the ice trade, there was a widespread suspicion among doctors of cold. You know, Mm -hmm. heat was something just to deal with. It was a mere nuisance, but cold was something to avoid at all costs. But once doctors realized that there were some health benefits of ice, that that changed. Um, And with that uh, kind of psychological change, uh, that opened up new types of um, of thinking about ice, and experiments started to take place. And those experiments gave way to new technologies, experimental technologies that we have today, such as cryotherapy, 
for various types of cancers. Um, that's that's a therapy that uses tiny ice crystals uh, that are injected into tumors to to kill them or to make them smaller. And also a, a, a therapy called therapeutic hypothermia, which is the process of lowering a patient's body to a dangerously low temperature, but within a healthcare context so that the body's being monitored. And this ther therapy is often used on, not often, but sometimes used on patients who've experienced a catastrophic event like a brain injury or a heart attack. Uh, it helps to stabilize the body so that those organs have some time to repair themselves so that there's a greater chance of survival and recovery. That was our conversation with Orion Magazine Executive Director Amy Brady about her book, Ice, From Mixed Drinks to Skating Rinks, A Cool History of a Hot Commodity. Up next, how our memories really work and how they sometimes don't. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Studio 2. I am Cherry Gregg. Hello, everybody. I'm Avi Wolfman, Errant. Cherry, we're going to start this segment with a test. <laughs> oh, test. Let's do, do you it. remember the set list of the Beyonce concert you went to earlier this summer? Um, a little bit. I know. <laughs> I mean, not bar for bar, not bar for bar. But I, I do know there were seven outfit changes. How about that? That's pretty good memory. Thank you. When Taylor Swift filled Lincoln Financial Field a little bit before Beyonce uh, arrived there, we heard some stories about fans who remembered songs that were never played. Mm. Others said the concert was a total blur. And all of this shows that memory can be flawed and that emotions can influence what exactly we remember. Associate Professor of Psychology and Neuroscience at Temple and Principal Investigator of Adaptive Memory Lab, Vishnu Deepu Murthy, wanted to see how memory is influenced when we're excited at a concert or terrified when we watch a scary movie. So he sent a bunch of people to a haunted house. You know the one at Eastern State Penitentiary, Terror Behind the Walls. I've been there, done that. It was scary. And then he had them recall their experience. What Deepu found was pretty interesting. And he joined us to talk about how trauma and other emotions shape our memory. All right, Deepu, before we get to the Eastern State stuff, which is fascinating, I want to start very meta. Yep. Okay. Do you remember the first time you became interested in the concept of memory as an academic subject? Yeah, I actually came into it um, really interested in rat neuroscience. Rat neuroscience? <laughs> yes, I went to work in my first lab, and it was a rat neuroscience lab, and then I got halfway into the experience and was like, I want more, <laughs> right? And then quickly switch to studying humans um, so you could really dig deep into what a memory means because it has so many different layers. 
So it started with rat memories. Started with rat memories, which sort of founded a lot of the basis of the research we're doing. But we do everything now in humans just to get a broader scope of the sort of three-dimensional nature of a memory. All right, we're already off track. But rat, I don't even know how, how do you gauge or understand what rats are remembering? So they do really interesting tests. For example, one you can do is um, you know place an old object in a new object that they've never seen before in the oh. same room and see how much time they're spending with one object versus the other. They love new things, so they'll sort of nose around more in a new object than an old object. And that lets you sort of get a sense of what they have in there. But it's a lot huh. easier to ask people than uh, to set up these rings. <laughs> what you do now is, I suppose, easier, but still not easy. Um, because memory does seem like a pretty tough thing to study. It's so shaped by perception and reaction. Um, so I want you to talk about this project you did where you sent people to terror behind the walls at Eastern State um, and then sort of got their sense of what they remembered afterward, right? So walk me through this experiment, how it worked, and what you found. So what we did is we had typically been trying to study these types of fearful and trauma memories in the lab. But that means, okay, we'll show you a picture of a snake or we'll yeah. show you a picture of a spider versus something really boring like a book, right? But when you think back in your life, those memories that really have that emotional tinge to it, they're so much more complicated. So this is why we went to the haunted house at Eastern State is we wanted to get people immersively in a – full-bodied experience to then see what they remembered. So we had them go there, and if you haven't been there, it's awesome, high recommend, <laughs> terrifying. But what's neat about it is they have all these different types of rooms, right? So one room might be like hospitals and blood, where another room might be post-apocalyptic and guns, right? So each one has its own- They're quite distinct. Yeah. Right, different flavors. Um, and we had people wearing heart rate monitors at the time because you might be really scared of blood. I might be really scared of I'm scared clouds. of all of it, by the way. But <laughs> right. Um, but then rather than thinking about what was happening in that moment, we could say, how aroused was that person in that specific moment in that room? Right. Which let us sort of get this idea that everybody's different and might have different uh, sort of points of what they find terrifying or not. And what does that do to memory? So when they came back a week later, we tested their memory for the different events. And the thing that we predominantly found was that when you were specifically showing high heart rate, your heart's pumping because it's the thing that you really are afraid of the most, we were seeing memory changes that you started to focus really narrowly on the sensory details of what's happening versus sort of the gestalt experience of where you are. Well, so, give me an example of that. Perfect. Yeah. So imagine you're in a hospital room and a bloody nurse is approaching you with a syringe, right? If That's terrifying for me, yes. maybe yes. not for somebody else. You might have really great memory for what that syringe looked like or sort of the deep hues of the blood that was on the nurse's outfit, but less memory of what did the cabinet look like in the background? Huh. How did I walk in this room? Who was I with? Right? It's so a stuff very, that's very sort narrow of, focus and less peripheral. Narrow focus and narrow focus on the elements of sort of the – that most terrified you and sort of really intact sensory details of that. Huh. But it's sort of at the expense of everything else that's around it. So what are the implications of that for um, – you know, we first thought – when I heard about this, I thought about criminal justice, eyewitness accounts. But maybe there are other implications. I mean, what does this suggest um, about memory that might be more broadly applied? Yeah, so I think your intuition is correct in the same place we're thinking about of what does this mean to the criminal justice system. We rely a lot on eyewitness testimony when we are trying to resolve things in legal settings, and it's up to jurors to sort of extract how truthful they feel somebody is being or how accurate they're being in the world. And this is complicated, right? If it is something that is the focus of the event, 
they might be spot on accurate, mm. but at the same time be completely inaccurate, bit, inaccurate about features that happened before or after. Um, and I've been really pushing lately that we need to have more crosstalk with memory scientists and legal systems to say, hey, this person, you can't discredit what they're saying about fact A just because they did poorly on fact B because fact B might not be what was important to them. Interesting. So oftentimes in a trial, right, you might say someone might have misremembered something and then the defense attorney will say this shows this person has bad memory. But you're saying it's possible to misremember something in the same moment that you are remembering something very well. Exactly. So I think the idea of an unreliable witness is a little bit too black or white thinking. It's binary. Exactly. Yeah. It needs to be continuous about what part of the event are we trying to unfold in a given moment. This is so tough because, I mean, eyewitness testimony is completely crucial to solving crimes. There are some maybe systemic flaws in how we remember things in really stressful moments. So what do you kind of started to talk about it there. What do you hope policymakers will do with this information? Or, you know, it's evolving, right? I know it's the science is still evolving, but what do you hope they start to do with the information? Yeah, so there's two approaches that people are handling this with. One is, are there markers that we can find that are happening in real time that can give us more confidence based above and beyond just the words they're using? People are saying how fast they are to retrieve the information might actually give you a sense of their accuracy. And there's some oh, interesting. promising early data there. I tend to take another approach of let's just inform the jurors about how memory works, right? Maybe let's induce a little bit more uncertainty into the mix. Like you said, get rid of the binary thinking and appreciate the complexity that's there. We're not going to get black or white answers from from an eyewitness testimony. So let's do that right now. I want you to tell us how memory works. So first, biologically, how do our brains for memories like what's what's lighting up in there when memories are happening yes so it's pretty cool it's very linked with the sensory information or the perceptual information that's coming in so your brain's really adept at solving those things but then what's interesting is depending on the state you're in whether you're aroused or whether you're angry or whether you're fearful or whether you're curious right different neuromodulatory systems will come on. So you might have heard of things like the dopamine system or cortisol or noradrenaline, and they can actually shift where that information is going, and then that will determine the nature of the memory that's forming, right? So in one instance, we have this region, the hippocampus. Um, You hear this a lot with amnesics. If they lose their hippocampus, they have a hard time learning. But that's one of many memory systems that exist in the brain. And the nature of that memory will basically be depending on the state that you are in in a given moment and where that information is eventually going to land. Fantastic and fascinating. So, by the way, if you're just joining us, we're talking to uh, Vishnu Deepumurti, who is the Associate Professor of Psychology and Neuroscience at Temple and Principal Investigator at the Adaptive Memory Lab. We have a comment from Adriana, and I bet you get asked this at parties all the time, Deepu. What tricks do you recommend to remember things better? How can I improve my memory? Yeah. So broadly speaking, um, things like exercise and diet are surprisingly really good for memory. Um, Just keeping your brain active. These are sort of gestalt lifestyle changes that have downstream influences on memory. So when you say diet, does that mean just like a good diet or I should eat acai berries or something specific? You know, nothing specifically is found except more just healthy people have better memories. But that doesn't really get at the moment when you really want to learn something. And this might sound Really trivial, but my advice would be try to find a way to care about it, right? The more that you can get excited or curious and sort of attach it to prior knowledge that you have, 
the more likely you are to remember that information because our brain wants to absorb information that matters and is built quite adaptively to forget information that doesn't matter. So if you want to remember it, ask yourself, why does this matter to me? And that's going to help stamp it in Hmm. better. What's the evolutionary purpose of memory? Like, why do we remember things? Like, I mean, I understand, like, why I need pattern recognition or something to go about my daily life. But I don't understand why I need to remember what my preschool classroom looked like, which I do, by the way. Like, right. What is the evolutionary purpose of this? Yeah. I mean, so the interesting thing about evolution is it's not perfect, right? It's going right. to select for things that help and then other things come along for the ride. The so, ancillary things, they're just kind of like <laughs> the gifts that it picked up along the way. Exactly, yeah. right? Yeah. You don't always know what's important in the moment that you you find it, right? You think about a detective, Sherlock, sees everything, then the <laughs> aha moment comes you then have to go back and try to figure out what matters. So I think we overlearn things to help us solve the problem problems that later become important. Um, So if you're on a treasure hunt, right, it's going to be important to remember the cues that predict where the treasure was. Or even better, if you're foraging for fresh fruit that you want to eat versus spoiled fruit, you want to remember, you know, what patches of land were better, what patches of land were worse. Does it make an important statement that the tree a couple blocks away is turning brown and has moss on it? I don't know. Yeah. But you won't know until you find the thing that you did. And so that it's like a dragnet and it. you're getting all this information. Some of it's useful. Some of it isn't. But you do remember some of the not useful stuff because like your memory, it's doing what it's supposed to it do. It provides a scaffold to yeah. help you solve these problems. And I think what's really important about these sort of episodic memories, the ones that we can share with others and say out loud is then that means not only do I have this information for myself, but I can share it with you on the radio, right? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> right? You can communicate exactly. information so you don't have to live every experience on your own. And it gives you this beautiful system that lets you vicariously learn through your social networks. I have a comment here from Louise. This is interesting. My daughter remembers very little from the first 11 years of her life, even big events like a, a visit to Disneyland. Is there a difference in how we form memories when we're young? Yes, and our lab just started scratching the surface of this in the past three to five years. Um, But one of the models, which there's many, it's a very contentious field, um, is that when you're young, especially in these ages of, you know, three to five, you're learning to understand the world, right? Mm -hmm. And you sort of need that to lay down first before you can start to grab these really precise memories. So people think that when you're younger, you actually end up merging memories more often, right? So rather Mm -hmm. than having a very distinct memory of one visit to the grocery store, you're trying to build sort of a model of what grocery stores are like. Right. Mm. If you have really specific memories, it's sort of hard to put them together to get one model of how the world's working. But something amazing happens between the ages of four to six when people have sort of laid down these ideas of concepts of their world that then they can start getting the really precise memories. Ah, interesting. So sort of general collage-style memory when you're younger and then more specific memories as you get a little older? Right. And let okay. me give you a great example of that I think sort of clicked in my head when I thought about this. How do I have a memory of my mom before I know who my mom is or what a mom is in general, right? You sort of need that general knowledge before you can build up to forming tight memories. Okay, so this is a fascinating comment from Sylvia. When my husband and I get in an argument, and I I can relate to this here, we have very different recollections of what was said and how it was said. 
Can you explain why that happens? Um, if I could, I'd be in a very happy relationship. <laughs> uh, I am in a happy relationship, Louise, probably listening. Um, disclaimer, disclaimer, yes. disclaimer. So I think the idea of this is that often when we first started studying memory, it was so much about the content, right? Am yeah. I looking at something that's scary? Am I looking at something that's boring? But then as we've been growing in the past sort of 30 years, and up until now new research is coming out that is that our whole world – is filtered by the goals in our head, right? Mm, We're mm-hmm. going to find different things exciting and different things important and different things salient when we look at a conversation. And it's those features of salience and excitement and curious or anger in the context of a fight that sparks the different brain mechanisms that really make some memories more strong than others. So you can think in the context of a fight, you're going to really remember the things that hurt you to your core, Or you're going to remember the things that make you right. But that information might be really uninteresting or completely mundane to the person that you're in a fight with. Um, And we're currently trying to unpack that now where we're actually having people talk to each other in real time and try to extract what features of memory they are pulling out from the exact same conversation. I'm going to have my own disclaimer now. I'm in a wonderful relationship. I love you, sweetie, by the way. Uh, I I wasn't trying to say that we fight a lot. so I want to ask you about a problem that I'm having, Deepu, something that I've had my whole life, okay? When I meet someone for the first time, which happens a lot in my profession, I'll, we will, I'll remember all sorts of weird biographical details that they told me about their life, like where they're from, something specific about their job. I swear nine times out of ten, I cannot remember their name after the first meeting. And sometimes I'm even trying to do that, and it, it eludes me. Can you possibly explain what's going on with me? Yeah, and I'm going to sound like a broken record, but maybe broken records are okay. (laughs) Again, it's what's important in the conversation, right? You're sitting down and talking to me right now. Hopefully the things that I'm telling you about memory are much more interesting than that my name is Deepu. That's true. Right? That's true. So when you're drawing back to think about what there is to recollect and what's sort of lingering in your head, these are the things that strengthen in memory, that it lingers. The name is almost the most relevant feature of the whole the whole memory. So I say as a memory researcher, who cares if you forget their name, <laughs> if you can remember something about the interaction? You just gave me my out. Yes. Um, so here's a comment from Kyle. I remember being at an occasion with my family that I was never at. Why? So I'm, I'm, guess, I'm guessing from what Kyle's saying that the occasion did happen, but Kyle wasn't there, but Kyle remembers being there. What's going on? Yeah, so this is a pretty awesome phenomenon that exists that's really hard to study in the context of of a laboratory. But people have some really good theories about what's happening. And I think it's explained that a memory is not a static thing. It is not a library book that is, you know, packed away and then you pull it out and you can look at it and put it back. I think a better metaphor is that it is a whiteboard or a journal, right, or a document that you can edit. So every time you open up a memory, right, in some ways you are rewriting the memory or modifying it or Mm -hmm. editing it, right? So every time you open it, that means it becomes slightly more malleable. So if the person, I think Kyle was it? Um, If Kyle is around his family a lot and they're talking about this evidence, at some point when he is just reliving the telling of the story – all it takes is that slight modification that it gets introduced, that he put himself into there, and then that memory gets folded back in and solidified, right? So these memories are like living 
cyclical things that are, are recycled and the memory's not and static. Used. Exactly. And I think that's the big thing is that it is not static, which means it's open to things like putting yourself in an event that you were never there. And that was Vishnu Deepu Murthy, Principal Investigator of Adaptive Memory Lab at Temple University. Coming up, we are shaking things up with cocktails. Welcome back, everybody, to Studio Two. I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Hop Sing Laundromat is a Chinatown speakeasy, and the bartender in residence is famed mixologist Toby Maloney. He just won his second James Beard Award, this one for his new book, The Bartender's Manifesto How to Think, Drink, and Create Cocktails Like a Pro, co authored by Emma Jansen. Toby Maloney dropped by to explain the science of good cocktails and share some drinks, and they were delicious. Toby, welcome to Studio Two. Jerry, thank you very much for having me. This is really exciting. Yes, congratulations on the book. You really geeked out when it comes to cocktails in your book. Um, yeah, I felt that was needed. There's a bunch of wonderful cocktail 101 books out there, so we wanted to take it one step further. Yeah, so you break down the mechanics of a cocktail. You get specific on everything from temperature of ice to sweeteners, bubbles, and so many other things. But I want to start by asking you, what are the basic things you need to make a pretty good cocktail? We think of the three pillars or the three points as alcohol, strong, you know, slash strong, acid, and then sugar. And that every cocktail, be it an old-fashioned or a martini or a daiquiri all have three things that need to be in balance and in harmony to make a cocktail. And so we know what the alcohol is, but mm. explain the acid category. And so lemon or lime category. juice. Okay. Or pineapple juice or grapefruit juice or passion fruit or anything that is tart mm-hmm. that you would think of. And then sugar is sugar, but it can be honey. It can be the sugar that's inherent in aperitifs or dejectifs. It's anything that rounds things out and, and helps balance the cocktail. You have some really amazing recipes in your book, and they include ingredients like rose water. Mm-hmm. If I have a very basic bar at home, what do I need just to be pretty good and impress some friends? Um, you need some sugar and some water. You need a way to press lemon and lime juice that's easy, and you need a bottle of gin, a bottle of rum, a bottle of brandy, a bottle of whiskey, maybe a couple of liqueurs like either chartreuse, if you can find it, or St. Germain, or orange curacao. And from there, you can build most things. A couple of dashes of bitters in things work, so a couple of bottles of bitters. And so those basic things can cre- give you the at least the starting point. Yep. What inspires you to, to create a new drink? 
memories, art. Um, occasionally, there'll be a flavor combination that I'm like, that's really interesting. I'm going to go create something that is other pertaining to that. But more, it's it's feelings and jokes and words and poems and things you just run ar- into on your daily runaround that you find interesting or inspiring. Yeah, and what's sort of your favorite, I guess, alcohol to work with? I love brandies. Everything from cognac to Slivovitz to Laird's Applejack. There's just such a wealth of diversity in brandy and they're a little harder to find but when you find that really cool quince brandy or the carrot brandy it's really worthwhile delicious sounds delicious and since you have drinks in front of us let's talk about these drinks what do you have for us today the first one we're going to do is called a jack rose this is a very simple cocktail it's Laird's Applejack. Laird's is a brandy made pretty close by in New Jersey. It's the oldest family-owned distillery in the country. This is 100-proof apple brandy, some lemon, some grenadine, which grenadine is not that red stuff you see that says roses mm-hmm. on it. Grenadine is the pomegranate syrup. And then a couple of ashes of orange bitters and a couple of ashes of peixot bitters. All right. So um, describe the flavors that I should be expecting when I'm when I sip this. Apples, pomegranate, lemon. Okay. See how sophisticated my palate is. Okay. What we're also going to do is you're going to take a sip, Mm -hmm. and then I'm going to garnish it one way. Then you're going to take another sip, and I'm going to garnish another. So take a sip of it ungarnished. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about how aroma completely changes the game of a cocktail. First of all, that is delicious. It's a really It's a really good drink. Okay, now take a sip. And let's see how it changes. Mhm. Wow. <laughs> That's just a That's little just a little bit of an orange rind? A little bit of orange oil on top. Yep. And now we'll do a little bit of lemon. It's very refreshing once you put the orange lime there. Yeah. A little orange oil, it brightens it up. Now a little bit of lemon, that brightens it up even more. Oh, my goodness. And it's like because you can smell it, you can taste it, and it just sort of opens up your taste buds. Exactly. This is good. <laughs> this is delicious. Um, I see why you won the James Beard. <laughs> That's a delicious drink. Excellent. Thank you very much. It's uh, it's one of my favorites. It's been around forever, and it, it always works. On the cold days, on the warm days, mm-hmm. um, it's three ingredients in the truth. The truth is technique. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can have the most delicious alcohol, the freshest fruit, all of the best syrups. But if you don't know how to put them together and shake and stir correctly, you're going to have a poor drink. And it has a good aftertaste, mm-hmm. too, because some drinks leave a bad aftertaste or like something when it's over. But that has a really nice Aftertaste. Thank you very much. We mm-hmm. talk a lot about the narrative arc of a mm-hmm. cocktail being from the first smell. Like when you put the glass up to your lips, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to smell the lemon or the bitters or the absinthe or whatever you have as an aromat. And then you want to pay attention to how that drink finishes and what it's like after it's not been in your mouth for a little while. So having a good narrative arc to every cocktail is something one needs to pay attention to as well. Wonderful. And what is this one? 
So this is another brandy cocktail, but this is one from New Orleans. This is called a vous carré, mm. um, meaning old square in French. It is from the Hotel Monte Leon. Um, we're going to do the exact same thing. You take a little taste, and then I'm going to garnish it two ways. Um, so this is cognac, rye, sweet vermouth, benedictine, angostura, and peixot bitters. That's good. That's really and it has a totally different flavor. Totally different. Like no vibe. apples, nothing. It's just totally different. Yep. And it, it's not too strong, but you can taste the strength. Quite possibly the most important part of every cocktail is water mm. and making sure that you have the water content in the drink to bring it down to a point where you can really taste everything. Yeah. Because alcohol is too strong, lemon juice is too acidic, and tart. Simple syrup or in most liqueurs are too sweet. You need that water to kind of temper them and stretch them out so that you can really appreciate them. Okay. This is chemistry right here. Sure, I'm like, I feel like chemistry. I'm in chemistry class. Go ahead. Okay, now we're going to do a little zoop zoop with the lemon. I'm just cutting a little piece of lemon peel with about the size of a quarter and then just squeezing it with the mm. skin side And it down. really brightened it up a lot. Yeah. Just the smell of the lemon going in mm-hmm. my nostrils before taking the sip. Totally. Is is a is a thing. I mean it's it's magic that aroma is invisible but it completely changes the cocktail. It is amazing. And I have to say I could spend all afternoon with you and mm-hmm. I I know people probably really enjoy sitting and allowing you to do what you do because you did not know me, you created two really great drinks that Excellent. I I really enjoyed. So thank you. Thank you very much, Sherry. Oh, that interview tasted good. (laughs) That was James Beard Award winner Toby Maloney, co-author of The Bartender's Manifesto and Bartender in Residence at Philadelphia's Hopsing Laundromat. And that is it for Studio 2 today. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Marie Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks is our engineer. And for more of our show, head on over to whyy.org slash studio2 or download us wherever you get your podcasts. From Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Avi wolf And I am Cherry Gregg. Thank you so much, friends, for joining us. Cheers. Cheers.